So the gospel reading for today is kind of a mess, if you noticed. Um, so I'm, I'm, this is my f- official complaint against the committee that put the lectionary together. Um, because there's a lot there. They don't, it doesn't all necessarily, like, it's not always all necessarily meant to go sequentially like that, and there's no way we could talk about everything. Um, and it's also very, very contextual, uh, meaning that there are a lot of like cultural assumptions and, and language and labels that are bouncing back and forth that as modern people we just miss. So I'm going to take the easy route and ignore most of that. And instead, uh, we're going to talk specifically about verses 15 to 20. So Waylon, if, if I could have those up. Um, this is the part where Jesus is saying, like, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault, and so on and so forth. And I want to focus on this because uh, on the one hand, it tends to be misunderstood and abused. And on the other hand, um, there's actually a lot to say about not just how we interact with each other, but also who we are as we are sitting here today in 2023. Um, Unfortunately, nothing is as as simple as it looks. And so there are a couple of words or phrases that we need to start to to dissect in order to get a little more clear on what Jesus is saying. And and unfortunately, there's one really important part that happens in that first line. It says, if your brother sins against you, that sins against you, um, if we were playing football, I'd say there's a flag on the play. And it's actually a very interesting flag, so we're going to get very nerdy for like two minutes. So bear with me. In Greek, it says, if your brother and then sins against you, hamartese ese. I, I think I see at least one face going, wait a minute, hamartese ese. You hear that, that, that repetition there? So this may shock you, but 1,800 years ago, 1,900 years ago, we had no uh, photocopiers, no printers, no printing press, nothing. And everything had to be copied by hand. And that was a very specialized uh, career, essentially, with very special training. And the ancients had different techniques for making these copies. And then the most effective, or uh, maybe not effective, because as it turns out, it's not, uh, the most efficient way of, of making these copies is to have one person who is reading the master copy and a bunch of other people, highly trained uh, scribes, if you will, uh, writing down what they are hearing. The problem is that if you are writing down what you hear, it will introduce certain, we'll call them errors, technically they're called variants. And you can see this in English. If I were to say, everyone get out a piece of paper and a pen and write down this sentence, the book is read, I think most of you would say the book is R-E-D. Somebody here would probably say the book is R-E-A-D because it sounds the same. 
So you can kind of tell when that happens because there are certain ways that will copy what we hear. And as it turns out, in the earliest and therefore like the best copies of Matthew that we have, that phrase against you is missing. And so what probably happened was that there was somebody who was reading from the master copy and they said, Hamartese, and somebody maybe like me who has ADHD and didn't take their meds that morning was staring off because there was a cloud or something outside and they weren't paying careful attention. They heard Hamartese and they in their mind, they just repeated that phrase, and so they wrote, Hamartese ace, if your brother sins against you. Okay, end of the nerdy rant. It's very interesting. Um, but the reason why I bring that up is this is one of the few cases where it kind of matters. And I don't know why ESV is a modern translation didn't drop the against you. That's up to them. But... Um, it actually matters because if the against you is actually part of what we're talking about, then what we're dealing with is an argument between two people. But I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. And brother in Greek, masculine can be like just sort of the generic gender. So sisters are included here too. Um, because listen to the difference. If somebody sins versus if somebody sins against you. Now you have conflict between two people. And that's not what Jesus is referring to and there are other ways to deal with that and, and he talks about that in other places. The difference here is this. Uh, if Say you were going out to the parking lot and you saw somebody who, was, who, who, you, who you know, and you know to be kind of an even keel person. Not somebody who's like super reactive, they're not very dramatic, they don't get mad necessarily a lot, they don't have a temper. And they start, you, you just see them screaming at me saying, you are a terrible person. Okay, on the one hand, probably shouldn't say that, and we would classify that as sinful. But if somebody who is not prone to those kinds of outbursts is doing that, you would, I would hope anyway, probably turn to me and say, what did you do? Because now we have an issue of perspective. Jesus here is talking about the opposite of that. This is not about perspective. This is about one person's action. And it is not about getting them. It's about recovering them. So somebody within the community is caught up in something sinful, or to maybe use modern uh, uh, language, uh, something that is going against God's desire for them that is eating them alive, destroying them. Kind of, kind of an, uh, uh, an easier, obvious example would be, say, somebody has a real hard time with alcohol. 
And, and I don't mean that in, in a judgmental way. I, I, just by sheer probability, there are people here that have that struggle. This is not judgment. This is about rescue. But if somebody is kind of caught up in this, and it's like eating them alive, and it's affecting uh, the way, uh, it's affecting their health, it's affecting uh, their job, their family, their relationships, or something, or so on and so forth, like you, you're not looking to cast judgment, you're looking to help. So first off, then Jesus says, go and tell him his fault. Again, I don't know why you translate it like that. It's... Um, because please don't come and tell me my faults. <laughs> I know what they are. Um, this is more to do with holding up a mirror. Hey, I, it seems like you're having a really hard time with this. Is there any way I can support you? Which is very different from you're doing this, knock it off. Does that make sense? And so Jesus starts off with doing this alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Again, all of the gender stuff here should be pretty neutral. Um, in other words, if they see, oh man, this is an issue. I do have this problem. I, I can't control this. Or yes, I'm all of that gossip has been tearing at myself in the community and they step back from it, then this is good news. Uh, next slide, please. But if he does not listen, which is probably what's going to happen, most of us anyway, that, that's what I would do. I wouldn't listen. Uh, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, again, using things like charges and evidence sounds like Jesus is encouraging us to be like militant in calling people out on stuff. Um, not exactly. He is actually going back and, and quoting from Torah. And he is, he, he's kind of shifting the context. Because in Torah, if you were to levy charges against somebody, you needed witnesses to, to validate that claim. And so Jesus is pulling from that principle. But I argue that this is a much gentler situation. Take a couple of people who've seen it also then and go and talk to them about it. Now we're in kind of Maybe a better term would be intervention. Notice that it does not say, tell everybody about it. Because one of the ways that this gets misused is gossip. Um, it, it's, kinda, it's almost a trope in certain church circles that, uh, that, that prayer groups that gather for the sake of praying about others within their community is really just for the sake of gossip. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. we need to pray for so-and-so. Did you hear what they did? <laughs> Let me, let's talk about this. I have some tea to spill. Um, that's not what Jesus is saying, but that's also how this gets misused. And in fact, I would argue that something like 
gossip and just spreading things and, and stabbing people in, uh, or attacking people behind their backs is exactly the kind of sinful thing that Jesus is referring to here. But this is about taking a couple of trusted people and coming alongside a person that needs help and walking with them. Very different from a power move trying to get somebody to knock it off or behave. And again, the context of this is that it's something that isn't personal. So, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Another huge flag on the play. Please do not get up during announcement time and spill the tea. Uh, That's not how that works. Because when we hear the word church in this reading, we tend to think about hierarchy. We tend to think about buildings. We tend to think about establishments and to an extent people in the pews, but it's a very loaded term. And the word, this word used particularly in, in Matthew should evoke um, uh, an Old Testament word. Uh, the, the assembly of the congregation of Israel, or a congregation of Israel, is how it's usually used. Basically, it's shorthand for saying God's people. Uh, this is Jesus' way of just talking about a community. Not, um, not a hierarchy, not an institution, but just people. Uh, now, on the one hand, that sounds horrifying, because it sounds like your dirty laundry is getting aired. Uh, hold on to that thought because we need the rest of it to, to, or the next verse or so to talk about it. He says, and if he refuses to listen even to the people of God, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, uh, typically, first century Jewish context, a Gentile or a tax collector is seen as somebody who is morally inferior and not part of you. They are on the outside of that congregation or group of people. But up to this point in Matthew, Jesus has been changing that. Because if, if you assume that Jesus is saying this to his disciples or with his disciples at least present, There's a tax collector sitting right there. And as far as I know, his name is Matthew, traditionally associated with the author, as the author of this, uh, of what we're actually reading. As far as we know, Matthew didn't say, dude, I'm right here. Um, Because Jesus has this tendency of rehabilitating these tax collectors. Jesus has gone out of his way throughout this story and throughout his career of helping Gentiles, helping the wrong sorts of people. That was one of the like subversive radical things about what Jesus did during his ministry is he helped exactly those people, the Gentiles, the tax collectors. You're not supposed to do that. So what is he saying here? I think in modern language the word that we would use to describe what Jesus is doing here is the word boundaries. Boundaries, uh, there's a book uh, by Cloud and Townsend, it's kind of a classic, check it out, um, uh, by all means. 
boundaries are a way of saying, I care about you, and there are certain things that I will not allow for myself. This is not, even though Matthew 18 is often used as kind of like a a hammer that we can bludgeon sinners with or something like that, this is a statement about the people of God individually saying, this is not personal, I'm taking a, a step back, I care about you, but I'm not willing to allow myself to be treated this way. I'm not willing to enable this particular pattern, this sin that you are caught up in, as it destroys you. I will insulate myself from this. If somebody, uh, to to run with the the example of somebody who loves to gossip, uh, so much so that they can't even drink tea because they just spill it everywhere, uh, it would be saying, that's interesting, but you know what, I, I don't really want to talk about this right now. I think that's what Jesus means when he's saying, treat them like the Gentile or the tax collector. It's just taking some steps back. Saying that I don't want to be around that. I don't want to enable that. I don't want to have a hand uh, in that. And I think it's really important to, to dive down deep into the details, into the weeds of this, because it can be used horribly. So Jesus gives a a way of actually walking alongside somebody who is struggling, who is caught up in something dangerous and destructive against the will of God, which is what the Bible would call sin, in a way that doesn't make it personal, doesn't make it an attack, this is not a power move or anything like that, and if it has to come to it, to establish a bit of a barrier so that that destruction stays over there. There are certain things we don't do here. And that would be good advice. But you don't really get crucified by the most powerful empire on earth because you went around giving advice. So Jesus goes on to say, and again, we're not going to be able to talk about all the details here. There's just too much, and even this part is really contextual. Uh, Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This has to do with the assembly of God's people making decisions about uh, what we allow and what we don't. And churches do this all the time. Um, to use, well, it's a hairy example, but uh, you know, do, are, are we allowed to see rated R movies? Or something like that. Um, the answer, I don't know, it depends on the movie. We're not a bunch of legalists. Uh, again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything... They ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Does it seem weird that Jesus links this with everything he just said? Like, what does this have to do with, like, helping out a member of your community? The answer is actually everything. It has everything to do with it. Um, 
it was a known debate at the time of Jesus, like kind of within that window anyway, of how many people does it take to establish an actual congregation or gathering of the people of Israel, God's people. And the ancient sages and rabbis uh, argued about this endlessly because that's what they did. And uh, they started with 10. And in um, a kind of an obscure bit of like some of the earliest Jewish writing we have in a, a document called Mishnah Pirchei Avot, they come to the conclusion that where there are two gathered and the words of God's teaching pass between them, there the divine presence is with them. Sound familiar? There I am with you. I am among them. There the divine presence is with them. Somebody's quoting somebody, and I think it's very unlikely that the ancient rabbis would be quoting Jesus on purpose. So within this community, Jesus is saying that as you gather, the divine presence is here. And not only that, but Jesus is making the claim that he is the divine presence. He is the law. Now we're getting into the territory of you are challenging structures of power and we are going to kill you. But here we are. There is something sacred that happens when people gather in the name of Jesus. In all throughout the history of the church, very, very powerful, transformative, beautiful moments come out of the very thing that we are doing right now. Because we gather with the understanding that all of us, each and every one of us, including you, and especially me, belong in that category of person that we started talking about who is caught up in something broken, something destructive, something damaging. Again, what the Bible calls sin. And we are gathered here not because we like to draw boundaries to make sure that we, the perfect people, the good people, the righteous people are on the inside and everything else and everybody else is on the outside, but rather we're the ones who gather because we know that we belong in the outside. But Jesus, the divine presence, taking on flesh, walking around in sandals, who grew up and taught and led his disciples and invested in them, who went to into, down into his grave because we belong in the category of that first person. And in that death, as God raised him from the dead, 
Jesus has formed this community. This, what we are doing right here, the people we are gathered with right now, this new family. And so what Jesus actually lays out for us in Matthew 18 isn't like a, uh, something we can use to bludgeon people with or get people in line or anything like that, but rather it's a way that we can love each other, that we can support each other, Because when human beings gather together and spend any time together, we will irritate each other, we will cause problems, and things can get messy. Jesus is very aware of this. But what these steps do is reframe that. This is not just a gathering of people. This is not a club. This is not um, just like a a community that you can find anywhere else. This is the church the assembly of God. And so we are here because we actually care. We look around at the people that, um, that we are sitting near and we are going on in their lives. And if they are destroying themselves and struggling, then it matters because we care, because we are part of that too, because that reality is in us as well. Which is why, again, Jesus says, as we gather, even if there are two people show up to church, the divine, sanctifying, saving presence of God is with us. Amen.